You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we come to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, what we have, if we're trying to look at the overview, is in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, we had like a summary for the book. And so what you see in the teacher, or what we see, it's called the preacher. You know, Solomon is talking, and he talks in the first person, and then he steps into kind of the person of the skeptic. And he gives an overview of all the things that he tried to find meaning. And it's very specific. If this life is all that there is, is there anything that can sustain me? Is there anything that has meaning? Like deep meaning. And we come here and all of it's kind of um, a pursuit. But we come to the idea of happiness and pleasure. And so, you know, what, one thing to even kind of think about this is all the things that you do to try to make yourself happy. When I was in college, uh, I was dating Kinsey, and I talked her into um, uh, making an all-nighter, like not studying for a test early, but going with me to a concert, and then we would just stay up all night and study. And I talked her into that because it made me happy. I wanted her to come with me. Uh, to the concert and uh, she wanted to make me happy because making me happy kind of made her happy so she agreed and she had never it blew my mind she had never pulled an all-nighter and if you're unfamiliar with an all-nighter it's just where you do what you want to do and then you just don't sleep and you study in a desperate fit like it might actually help but you don't know if it's actually going to help but it's what you do and so I talked her into this, and uh, we went to the concert. It was great. Uh, we stayed up trying to study. I fell asleep because I didn't have anything to study. Um, she went and took the test. She got a D, maybe an F. I can't remember. It doesn't even matter. She graduated. It's back. You know, it doesn't matter. Uh, her grade did not make her professor happy. That didn't make her happy, which started affecting my happiness. But, like, I'm telling this story, and it's actually making me happy right now. You know the story I'm not telling right now? I'm not telling the story of like when, when we studied early and went to bed and ate a bunch of like power brain food, you know, like, you know, like pumpkin seeds and broccoli and turmeric. I don't even know what turmeric is, uh, but it's good for the brain and dark chocolate. I knew that. And you know, I'm not talking about that night. I'm talking about the night that we went to the concert, failed the test, fell in love. We have four kids now and she graduated college. That's what I'm talking about. All the pursuits, there's intermingled inside of it an idea of what makes you happy. Blaise Pascal, um, in the 1600s, he was a Frenchman, mathematician, physicist, inventor, philosopher, and Catholic theologian. Like, wow, he did a lot. This is what he says about the pursuit of happiness. He says, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both attending with different views to be happy. They will never take the least step but to do this object. What object? To be happy. 
This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. In the 1600, Blaise Pascal looked at the world and he said, man, in all of our motives, whether it's instant gratification or a long-term gratification, is this essence of what makes me happy. You know, I, I see this in babies, in like actual babies, not like stop being a baby, baby, like actual babies. Like they just want to be happy. Like they just want in that moment, whatever they need, whatever they think they need, they will scream their head off until you do it. Uh, a couple of weeks at Citigroup, um, one of our babies uh, in the Citigroup, um, Tatum, she uh, started playing the drop game with me. And that's, if you don't know this game, it's, be careful. Uh, you'll get caught in it. It's where a, a baby just drops something and then you pick it up and they just love it. They just love it. And so you hand it back to them and they drop it again. But like this thing was happening to me, like I loved it too. And so it was making her happy, which was making me happy, which I probably played far too long. And the mom involved was like, you're just going to addict her to that. It wasn't really making her happy, but I was so happy. What do you do? What do you think? will make you happy. You know, in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, Solomon furthers his pursuit to find happiness and it focuses on testing his heart with pleasure. You know, this comes at the heels of Ecclesiastes chapter 1 where we get the overview. But at the very end of Ecclesiastes chapter 1, we kind of get this idea of where he started. And so if you look just one page over, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 16 through 18, he says, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experiences of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and to know folly. And so he gives all this description to say, man, I just gave myself to knowledge. I thought I would find meaning. I thought I'd find something worthwhile, a settledness, a wholeness. I thought I'd find something on the other side of that. But if this is all that there is, like that actually didn't give me meaning. It didn't make me feel safe and secure. It did quite the opposite. Like this is what he said. He said, I perceive that this also is but striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And so we start the pursuit for happiness if this life is all that there is. And he says, man, I tried knowledge, and I just found sorrow. I found myself grasping at the wind and unable to hang on to it. You know, and actually, we'll, we'll, we'll jump back and forth. You don't have to look at it. But in 1 Kings chapter 4, we get this description. We'll actually look, you know, 1 Kings 4 will be 5, I think 7, and then also just kind of 10, just reference something. But we get descriptions of Solomon, and we get a description that God gave Solomon incredible wisdom. That he had great understanding of like all of life. Like it says that he wrote over 3,000 Proverbs in 1 Kings chapter 4 verses 28 through 32. He wrote over 1,005 songs that he studied trees, plants, beasts, birds, reptiles, and fish. Like he was a guy that knew stuff. Like he really studied. He really went in. He thought, man, I want to see how life works. And it came up with vexation. Striving after the wind. 
I mean, matter of fact, if, if you look, you know, later in First Kings ten, it says that the queen of Sheba heard about his renown, like how smart he was, and came to test him to see him, and walked away like he's got to be the smartest guy I've ever met. Like he knew stuff. Like he knew, like, hey, that mushroom you can put on a salad. That mushroom will kill you. That mushroom, we'll just call it magical. You should stay away from it. Like he knew stuff. He tested and he tested and he knew stuff and it failed him. So where do you go for happiness when knowledge fails you? Ecclesiastes chapter 2. You look to pleasure. And so we have uh, just really three points um, uh, right here. And so first it's going to be the pursuit of pleasure. And so we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We get kind of this general statement of how pleasure failed him. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, we get a bulleted list of all the pleasures that failed him. And they're all the same things that we think will make us happy if we just had more of them. And then the second point, we're going to look at specifically the limitations of pleasure that you can go hard and you can go far down that road, but you're going to find the same limitations no matter how far you go. No matter how much you believe a little more will satisfy, the same limitations will keep popping up, whether it's in relationships or wherever you are looking. And then we'll finally look at what does pleasure point to? And we'll jump in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 just for a second. And so let's get started. So first, the pursuit of pleasure. And so like our want of pleasure is for more than physical sensation. Like when we go to pleasure, we are wanting something more than a dopamine rush. We want more than what dopamine can give us. We're seeking a sense of well-being. We're seeking a sense of validation. We're seeking a sense of wanted and accepted. We're seeking something that it can only lean us to at best, but it can never give us. And the danger is we always believe that just a little bit more is what will fix it. And we never doubt the road itself. And so let's look at this list. So verse 1, it says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And so he just said, man, wisdom failed me and I'm all depressed. So now I'm just going to jump into pleasure. And what we kind of see is actually kind of a normal progression of what you know we kind of do is we grow up trying to seek happiness if we don't trust in the lord if we don't lean into what he says if we don't heed the warnings like we might go from like man i really studied hard it just didn't fulfill me and so now i'm just going to go hard into pleasure and so look at what he says i will test pleasure like he wants to know will pleasure fix the aching uncertainty in his life will it fill his life with meaning can it make him feel whole and he quickly answers his question before he tells us how he tested it he says no it left me feeling meaningless verse one it goes on it says this but behold this also was vanity i said of laughter it is mad and of pleasure what is the use and so he gives two, two, two things describing pleasure. He first just kind of says laughter. It's madness. It doesn't accomplish what I set out to do. It's insane. And then he said pleasure. Who cares? And so by, by, by using both words, they don't mean the same thing. They're kind of like different vectors of different kinds of pleasure you could go. And so like when he says laughter, it's, when he says it's madness, it's describing pleasure that we might say is more base or more carnal. You know, something that looks more sinful. It doesn't look very sophisticated. 
You know, this is, this is probably more in the category of like the kegger kind of pleasure. You know, kind of more in the side of like, if you think about like shows, you know, this is more like on the Jerry Springer side of entertainment and not as much on like the Oprah Winfrey side of entertainment. Like this is far more like just please me now skin deep. But then he uses a word when he says, when he says pleasure what uses that word is probably a little bit more toward the vector of refinement, sophisticated, a more grown-up pleasure, and we're going to see both of these. He's going to describe both of them, and so like one is the kegger, and the other is like aged Bordeaux by a roaring fire, or one is binging the entire season of The Bachelor, and the other is like let's buy first edition classic books, or one is like let's get lit, and the other is like let's go to the orchestra. I mean, like they're both seeking pleasure. And he says it's not just one kind of pleasure that you have to avoid because it's not going to turn out. He's like, all the pursuits of pleasure, he's like, I tried them. They didn't turn out. I got to the end and I was lacking. And so, you know, th- th- there's many roads to living for pleasure. And I want you to know. And I, I, Solomon wants you to know that we're all on one of them. And he's going to tell you that trying to find meaning and worthwhileness or wholeness in pleasure is what he already said, maddening and useless. And so now let's look at the bulleted list. The first one is the pleasure of the party. And so verse 3, it says, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, how to lay hold uh, how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. And so he says, man, I just gave myself to throwing the biggest parties that I could to get my people around me to get good drink and good food to go hard after music like he said I went hard after these things and so I said like first kings four we actually get a description of what one of these parties would take and so you don't have to go there but listen to this in first kings chapter four starting in verse 20 it says this it says Judah and Israel were as many as the sand of the sea. It says they ate and drank and were happy. And so the description is his people were happy campers. They had enough. And then it describes what one night of a party, one day would have required. And so it says this in verse 22. It says Solomon's provision for one day, for, for one party, this is what it took. And he describes it, 30 cores of fine flour. Now, my Bible, help me with what 30 cores of fine flour is. It said that it was 220 liters, but I'm American, so I don't even know what a liter is. And so then I had to convert that with Google. So Google helped me. That is 60 gallons of flour. But then it goes, he also had 60 cores of meal. So that's 120 gallons of meal. Like they are baking some bread. That's a lot of bread. But then it goes on. This is what was getting thrown on the grill. Verse 23. Ten fat oxen, twenty pasture-fed cattle, a hundred sheep beside deer, gazelles, roebucks. I don't even know what that is, but you can grill it. And then fattened fowl. Like that is a lot of food. And so when it was, you know, I looked at a couple different commentaries. They all said the same thing. Man, this has to provide for somewhere between fifteen and 20,000 people. 
Like when it talks about what it took for Solomon, like when he threw a party, what it took for one day to invite everyone in, it is far more than what you're ever going to accomplish. See, the danger is, is like we might read this and be like, yeah, 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 I mean Solomon party, but did he party? I mean, does he really know? Like the description of this is far beyond any like BYOB barbecue that you, you might throw. It's far beyond. It's way further down the road. And so if you're sitting here thinking, man, just a little bit more. If I could be in that kind of room with those kind of people, with that kind of experience, with that kind of vacation. If I could party like that, then I would find satisfaction. It would be happy. He's saying it won't work. He's saying, man, I went down that road. You know, when you, you take this and you mix it with, like, folly, you see the word, I laid hold of folly. It's talking about entertainment and amusement and shows. Like, if you jump down and you see in verse 8, look at verse 8. It says that he found singers and he just bought them. I mean, he didn't, like, play his favorite mixtape for the party. He bought his favorite band and they threw down. And so it's talking about, like, entertainment. And so this is how so many people start to try to find life. We start to believe if I could be there with those people, with that experience, then I would be happy. And it's not like the idea of not knowing the song, but being there when it was sung. But the next morning, it always comes. The next morning, it, 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 it always comes and you start working against some things that addiction counselors will tell you about you start working against diminishing returns and the idea of how addiction works that the dopamine release that you get for the first time it has to take more and more to get that same kind of dopamine release and so what solomon is saying is man i threw the biggest party i could and the next night i threw the same party and it wasn't the same thing so I tried to throw a bigger party, but we ran out. We eventually ran out of cows and Robux. We had nothing more to grill. And he said, this is meaningless. And so the first, like we see wine and folly, it didn't deliver for Solomon. But you start to think, man, more will fix you. And Solomon's saying, it's not a question of more. You need to start doubting the road itself. And so next... Solomon grows up a little bit. And so where, where like wine and folly failed him, where the party failed him, he moves to achievement and possession. Like look at this, the pleasure of achievement and possession. Look how grown up this is. Verse 4, he said, I made great works and I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them with all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of the growing trees. He said, man, I grew up, I bought a house, I got tired of waking up with some new tattoo that I didn't know where I got or who gave it to me. I grew up and I started to say, I will acquire things. I'll build things. Like, look at this description. You know, in 1 Kings 6, it unpacks it and describes it even more for us. It says that he built the temple, which is a marvel of the ancient world. It took seven years to build. Then he built his palace. It took 13 years to build. And then it says he also built many houses for his many wives. And we're not even there yet. We're going to get there. And a sermon is always awkward when you have concubines in the title. You know, it's always awkward. 
but he started to build. Like he didn't plant a garden and fertilize his yard and yell at the neighborhood kids to get off his grass. It says that he built parks and forests. Forest. Like he built forest. Like, I mean, it doesn't get much bigger than that. He built forest. And then he dug out. It's called Solomon's Pools. If you go like a couple miles southwest of Bethlehem, you'll see the craters where he dug out cisterns and pools for aqueducts to water the forest. And so Solomon threw himself into the pleasure of building and acquiring. And he also threw himself into like growing the business. Look at verse 7. It says, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than anyone who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gather for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. He said, I got working hard. I didn't just build a house. I didn't just build a life. I started to build a business. And he said, my servants had servants who had servants. Like I grew. The empire was growing. And then verse 11. It's all under this heading. This was vanity, striving after the wind. I kept trying to grab at something that would make me feel stable, that would make me feel secure. And like grabbing mist, it went through my fingers. It wasn't enough. And so like right there stopping, whether it's more of like a base, you know, pursuit of pleasure of like, man, just living for the party, everything I can. Or maybe a more, a little bit grown up pleasure where it's like, man, I'm just going to build and be satisfied. I'm going to grow a business, make a name for myself. He says it's striving After the wind, the lure of the party failed him. Achievement and possessions failed him. But now we're going to get into like what Solomon's known for. His sexual exploits. And so we kind of just, eight and nine, we group together where it says, you know, he went hard after the pleasure of sex and recognition. Like, look at verse eight. It says, I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines. The delight of the sons of man. I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. And also my wisdom remained with me. And so he, he points out two things. I got a lot of recognition and I got a lot of women. Like he's like, I went hard after these things. Like if you look at the text, like what First Kings 11 is going to describe to you, it says that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Like I, 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 don't, I don't even know how that works. Like a thousand women at his disposal that he said he built houses for. Like, like how does that even work? Like, it's like, hey, Mia, it's Maya. I, I, I'm sorry. You know, I mean, is it alphabetical order? Like, all right, Zoe, I'll see you in a couple years. I mean, thanks. I'm glad for our nuptials. You know, I mean, what? How does that even work? But when it's talking about these exploits, like these are things that capture us. Like we think like our culture is drunk on sex and we think that some sort of sexual exploit or some sort of experience is going to solidify us. It's going to make us feel loved or it's going to give us some sort of experience. And Solomon would stand here and say, man, there is not a body type. There is not a hair color. There is not anything that I didn't experience. There's not a personality that I didn't experience. And what is he going to describe it as? It left me hollow. It didn't fill me the way I wanted to. I mean, and you could press him and you'd be like, well, I mean, I don't know, maybe a thousand and one would have fixed it. But just look at that list for a second. 
We went from chapter 1, like the all-encompassing, where he just said, man, hedonism, living for pleasure, it didn't work. And then he gets very specific where he says, hey, listen, for living for the party experience, it didn't work for me, and I partied really, really hard. And then he says, living for like acquisition, like growing a business and building a house and, you know, having the garden look just the right way and, you know, building a forest, like it didn't satisfy and then we go into these sexual exploits and he says it didn't make me whole like there's a problem with pleasure we want pleasure to be more than just pleasure we want the fun to transcend us beyond the stagnation we feel in our soul we want the achievement to offset the irrelevance that is what we sense in our hearts. We want the gleam of new things to bring light to our gloomy hearts. We want people's respect and admiration to outvote the insignificance that haunts us. We want sex to make us feel loved, to make us feel that we matter. One of uh, the, the books that I'm using, it, it quotes Carrie Cohen, who, um, man, she wrote uh, a memoir. Um, a memoir of promiscuity and how it, it failed her. She writes this. She says, I slept with close to 40 boys and men before I figured out doing so was not serving me well. There were many more with whom I did other sexual acts like oral sex or petting. Some in my late 20s, I tried to name, sometime in my late 20s, I tried to name all of them starting with my first, but I found out quickly I'd forgotten a host of names. For a man, this might be a pleasant trip down memory lane, counting up his conquest. But for a girl, it's a whole other story. I had let the men inside of me, wanting that to make me matter to them, wanting it to make me matter. Now they were just cross-outs and question marks. At some point, I gave up, disgusted with myself. Like... Like, just to draw this in. Like, if we were just like other animals and we just uh, approach sex for procreation or for, for fun or for the dopamine or, or whatever, there wouldn't be this kind of regret. But she says, I wanted to matter. I wanted something deeper than pleasure. I went to pleasure for something just beyond it, for something just on the other side that I knew I needed. And it seemed like I could never grab it and it was never quite there. And the more that I pressed in to pleasure to give me something that was just beyond it, the less whole I started to feel. Which brings us to our second point, which is much shorter. The limitation of pleasure. Now, we see this in verse 3 and verse 9. And so we see it said twice. And so pleasure has a limitation and it fails us in at least two ways. Like first, pleasure fails to distract you. It can't make you forget. In verse 3 it says, My heart is still guiding me with wisdom. And then verse 9 it says, Also my wisdom remained with me. And so remember the progression. Like He went deep in on like, I'm going to go after knowledge and it's going to fill me. And it didn't fill him. And so then he went deep in after pleasure. And he says, My wisdom stayed with me. That's not saying like, you know, I didn't like really lose myself. It's saying I couldn't forget 
there was an aching inside of me that I still couldn't forget. The pleasure couldn't distract me, couldn't numb it enough. It couldn't make me forget. The knowledge kept pushing through. And then the, the second thing, pleasure will fail to satisfy you because you can't hang on to it. Look at verse 10. It says, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, and my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all of my toil. And so he says, listen, it wasn't that acquiring things and building things, and it wasn't that the party and the band and the cows on the grill, it wasn't that those things weren't fun. It wasn't that you know I, I didn't enjoy that. It was that I couldn't hang on to it. As soon as I felt like I had something, it slipped through my fingers and I couldn't pull it close to me. It was some sort of thing that I felt for a moment, but there was something just beyond it that I couldn't get to. And even that moment slipped through my fingers. And so I was chasing it down something else. I wanted something beyond that thing. And then verse 11, it says, Then I considered all that my hands had done. And the toil I had expanded in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. And there was nothing more to be gained under the sun. He says, you can't, you can't keep it. You can't hang on to it. it. It fills for a moment and then it's lost. But it's more than that. He's saying, all the pleasure that I acquired in this world, it didn't fill up something inside of me that was lacking. And he says, like trying to grab the wind. You know, wind is something that you feel and it's there, but you can't like bottle it up and pull it out later. You can't have the same experience with it. It's there for a moment, but it passes. And he says, what I was seeking in all of these pursuits of pleasure, all these things to make me happy, there was something just beyond it that I couldn't get to. And if you have your Bibles, turn one page over to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, like, like the question might be, why? Why does the longing keep pushing through? Why is it not satisfied? You know, and the answer would be because the longing is eternal and you're trying to fill it with temporal things. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11, it says, He, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. Like right there, I, like just stop for a second. Like, he, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. And so the danger of like coming to this and being like, you know, Solomon, like, man, I tried to party. It, was, it didn't work. I tried to succeed. It didn't work. You start to think that God isn't like cool with pleasure. And like he made it. Like he made pleasure. Like he made it and he loves it. He's not like surprised by it. Like when he made crabs or, or lobster, he knew they were delicious. Like he made them that way. Like, like when he made like, like we, Bible reading plan, first of the year, we always start in Genesis and you, you've got the picture of how everything began. 
Like God made Adam and Eve, one man, one woman. He put them in a beautiful garden. He hadn't even been enclosed yet. And he just was like, hey, be fruitful and multiply. Like you have to like, God started this thing. He's not shy of pleasure, but he sees that the brokenness of sin will distort pleasure. And it'll make you think that it can give you something that it can't give you. And so he says, all these things are beautiful in its time. Also, verse 11 goes on, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Inside the heart of every human being is a longing etched into the shape of eternity. Etched into the shape of eternity. And that means that there's nothing in this world that can fill it. There's nothing big enough. And you can throw as much as you want into it. And it won't fill that groove inside of your soul. There will always be something just beyond it. And you'll try to throw more and more and more into it. But it won't fill it up. And what actually happens is it starts to, you know, it starts to like hollow it out. You know, C.S. Lewis, in uh, his great sermon, The Weight of Glory, that was turned into a book... He he talks about this very thing. He says, we cannot tell it because it is a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. And so he's talking about this same pursuit for something that will grab you and keep you. Something that will make you feel whole. Something that will make you feel solid. And he says, man, it's an experience that we've never actually had. He goes on, he says, we cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it. And we betray ourselves like lovers at the mentioning of a name. Our commonest expedient is to call the beauty. It behaves as if it were settling the matter. But all of this is a cheat. And so he says, like, we try to experience this and it's always just outside of our grasp. So we try more of it or we try something else. But there's always something just a little bit beyond that we're trying to fill. And it's almost like we remember it, but we've never experienced it. And then he goes to some of his loves. He says, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of the worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. And so C.S. Lewis, when he's looking at what the scriptures describe and he's looking at what he sees inside his own heart, he says, it's almost like there's a song that I've never heard, but I remember, and I'm trying to find that song in everything. There's a flower that, I've, that I smell, but I've never actually smelled it or see it, but I'm always trying to find it in everything that I look. There's something that haunts me that nothing in this world can satisfy fully, no matter how much of it I throw at it. And this is the good news. The Bible explains this problem very clearly. It begs us to see it for what it is, to stop, to look to Jesus. And it even tells us what we can expect when we look to Jesus. And so you you don't have to go there, I'll just describe it. Romans 1, 
verses 22 through 25, it tells us how we got into this predicament. It says that we exchanged the truth of Creator God. We stopped worshiping Creator God, the eternal, and we started worshiping created things. And so we were made to be in the presence of Creator God and to worship God, to satisfy our soul upon Creator God. And we started to worship created things, letting them take the place and trying to fill our hearts with it. And those created things are good things, but when we trust in them for themselves, they become dumb idols that break our hearts. And so we have this void inside of us. And Romans 1 goes on to say, and so God gave us over to our lust, and lust is just the wanting of more and more and more, and never finding satisfaction. And so Romans 1, it says that we're trying to put created things in the place where the creator stands. And temporal things can't feel eternal things. And so what is our condition? We eat and we're not full. We drink, but we're never satisfied. And that is the exact language that we get in Isaiah 55. In Isaiah 55, he spins this question and he just says, Why do you keep spending your life on that which you know won't satisfy And then Isaiah 55 verse 1, he gives this invitation. He says, come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And so he says, what you feel in your soul, it's not like just made up. There is a longing inside and there's a way that can be satisfied. But no amount of money or no amount of acquiring will give it to you. But he says, come and be satisfied. And then we jump down to verse 3. And it gives us a little idea of where it goes. It says, incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. And so what Isaiah 55 says is there is a need inside of you and it can be satisfied, but it can only be satisfied through a covenant that God has made with us. And then verse six and seven, it says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on them. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And so Isaiah, in Isaiah 55, says, Why do you keep seeking that which doesn't satisfy, but turn to God? And then we get in the New Testament pictures of what you can expect when you turn to God. In John chapter 4, Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well and uh, she's in the middle of the day trying to fill up her jar, coming for water. Women didn't come for water in the heat of the day. But what we find out is she's trying to fill up her life with a romantic relationship that keeps failing her. And she doesn't want to face others. And so she comes when no one else comes. And yet Jesus is here. You know, the relationship had taken and taken and taken from her. And it had taken so much that she avoided people at all costs. But Jesus... There, she meets Jesus. Jesus asks her for a drink. She reluctantly gives him a drink. He then starts just talking about water. Like he starts talking about water and he starts talking about thirst in John 4. And he says, man, we have this thirst. And even when it's quenched with this water, you know, we have to come back every day because it's never quite quenched. And, you know, she kind of starts to get annoyed with him. And she's like, you creepy rabbi, just give me my cup back. I mean, that's kind of what she says. And so he starts to talk, and then he says this, Wouldn't it be great 
If there was something that we could drink in that would well up inside of our hearts and never leave us thirsty again. And you could imagine the sorting through her life of like, man, I went to this relationship and it left me thirsty again. I tried this and it left me thirsty again. I have to come to this well every day in the heat of the day and I'm just thirsty. And she says, give me this water. And he says, I'm the living water. Whoever drinks of me will never thirst again. And so like what we see is we see, we see the warning that there is something we're looking for just beyond every pleasure. It's etched into the heart of men. Solomon said there's eternity upon your heart. We see the process of running and running where Isaiah says, why do you keep trying to acquire that which doesn't satisfy? We see Jesus stand in the middle and say, I'm what you're thirsting for. Come to me. And then we also can see in the New Testament what we can expect if we turn to Jesus. In Luke 15... We see the prodigal son. See, the prodigal son is is like Solomon in so many ways, just more reckless and younger. The prodigal son, you know, grew up in a household with wealth and means, looked at his father, said, give me what's mine, and then ran off to the far country seeking pleasure. It gets very specific that he ran off to drink and for prostitutes. And he found himself empty and in need. And he thought, man, I'll just go back to my father. And when he turned back to the father, he found something he wasn't expecting. He found his father waiting for him, looking to him, running to him, ready to embrace him, saying things like this, that you were once dead, but now you're alive. You were lost, but now you're found. We must celebrate. What is the gospel like? The longing inside of your heart that you feel like, you know, when we, when we talk about what we want to accomplish on Sunday morning through liturgy, through singing, through preaching, is really, really simple. We want to incline hearts toward repentance by showing a beautiful Jesus. We want something on the inside of you to relate to this that you say, man, I actually was seeking something that I'm not finding. And we want to look like this where you actually hold it up and you can say, man, this something may not be evil in itself. It probably isn't. There's good inside of it. And you say, but it doesn't satisfy because there's something inside of me that is etched in the shape of eternity that's just beyond everything else. And we want you to turn to Jesus and trust him more deeply. So where are you? What are you trying to grasp to make you feel like you matter? What are you believing that more of will fix you? Isaiah is begging you to listen. What are you spending your life on what can't satisfy? The the Samaritan woman is testifying that it won't satisfy your thirst. Solomon is telling you that more of it won't fill the eternal void of your soul. And so what do you do? The first thing that you do is you just agree. You agree with the Lord that you were made for more. You, you, you stop. You stop trying to fill your soul with what will never satisfy. You, you tell something. You tell a, a brother or a sister with you what you're believing that will satisfy, that keeps disappointing. And that's the confession piece. You bring the ache here. You just bring it with you. you know, every week we, we end 
by going to the communion. And we bring the only thing that we have. You don't bring bread. You don't bring wine. You don't bring anything to the table. You just bring what you have. And if there's an ache that you're saying, it's in my heart, you just bring it. What do you think will satisfy? Let me pray for us. Um, Father, Lord, as we turn our attention just to uh, the elements, Lord, it reminds us of what it took for you to turn the Father's heart back to us. It took Jesus the Son entering into our world and dying in our place. It took his body being broken and his blood being spilled. And Lord, we do that every week just to remember that we are brought into the table, that there is something etched inside of us that was built for eternity, and nothing else will fill it. And so, Lord, it's a time of, of confession. It's a time of confession for those who have never trusted Jesus, that we can say, I stand today, I trust Jesus. But it's a time of confession for believers, that we come to the table and we just bring what we have. And we're reminded of the different movements. And so the different movements that we have is you can come forward to take communion. And what will happen is a piece of bread will be torn for you, then dipped. And then a proclamation that this, Jesus' body and blood was spent for you. There's another movement for communion that we have individual cups. They're gluten-free and grape juice in the back. And it's the same reminder. And we have the same kind of movement. And it's just a reminder like the prodigal son, we return home. There's another movement. It might just be a movement of prayer, whether it's just with someone right next to you or or whether it's going back. We have people who are ready to pray for you back behind the, the black screens. They have lanyards on. And it might just be this. I am running down this road and I know it won't satisfy. You can tell them as little or as much as you want, but I want that to be a regular thing that we just invite prayer. I think this is going to fix me. And yet there's an ache inside of me. I know it's not going to fix because it hasn't fixed it. But the lure of just a little bit more is really, really strong in my heart. Let's just pull it out. Let's bring it with us. Let's have one another pray for that, and let's bring it to Jesus. Father, Lord, we need you. We're thankful. Lord, help us. We were built for pleasure, and you don't shy away from that. In your right hand, you hold pleasures forevermore. But Lord, when we exchange the creator for created things, we find woe, despair, what Solomon would say, vanity, vexation trying to grab the wind. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Come when you're ready.